Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Sebastian Kaplan. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. How's it going, man? It's going great. We had a wonderful episode now with uh, Steve Burke-Smith and his use of storytelling in the teaching and assisting others learn motivational interviewing. So before we go into our own experience of that, can you maybe remind people of how they can contact us via social media? Absolutely. On Facebook, you can find us at Talking to Change. On Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And any emails with uh, questions, with recommendations for future episodes and and potential guests, uh, you can get us at podcast at glenhines.com. Fantastic. And that's how Linda Hamilton at LHamilton1 contacted us today with one of the questions we asked. And a shout out to Dr. Charlotte Hilton, who just came along and said hello, and just, just to let us know that she's been listening to us. So hi, Charlotte, and uh, thanks for listening. So today, like I say, we met with Steve Burksmith, a really long-time old-timer around the MI world, and he was talking about his use of storytelling in MI. What do you, what do you take away from today, Seb? Yeah, I think, so obviously we'll hear in the episode, you'll hear a lot of um, examples of the stories that he tells and the way in which he tells them, and he's clearly a gifted storyteller. What I took away and really appreciate is how he demonstrates acceptance in the stories, uh, acceptance is, you know, it, it's an important part of MI and the MI spirit, obviously. And it's one of those words that you kind of know what it means. You, I'm sure you could describe experiences yourself of being accepted, but to translate in that into, well, this is how I do it, or this is how one could do it mm. is maybe less obvious or less clear. And, uh, Anyway, I, I just appreciated in the stories that he told that um, he, he really was able to demonstrate how he accepts others. Mm. And it's particularly true when he describes and models that acceptance of people who it would be very easy for us to react to. In essence, patients or clients who are coming and they don't want to change or their inverted commas resistant to change. And just that wonderful modeling of that acceptance of somebody in that state as well as someone who is ambivalent or ready to rock and, and make the changes. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, how about you, Glenn? Yeah, it's the lovely way that he uses genuine stories of his own experiences through years of meeting patients and clients and, and service users and how he has creatively translated those into ways of helping explain key concepts of MI. And that he talks about he has a bank of stories that's available to him to help him in different scenarios to help the learning group that he's with. And again, just that flexibility that he brings to the approach. And uh, he you know, he uses one uh, during our conversation and genuinely both of us were leaning forward <laughs> waiting for, for him to tell us the story. Uh, so, right. uh, and I'm sure other, I'm sure the listeners will experience that today that there's something about the way he tells the story that catches your attention and it's that use of that skill to then engage and then focus and then invite evocation from, from the students in his case but also then that invitation to translate that into the engaging focus and evocation with our with our clients as well. 
Mm. Yeah, no, it was, it was really interesting stuff. So yeah. we, uh, we hope you all will enjoy it. Yeah. Off to the episode. Indeed. Well, you're very welcome, Steve. It's great to see you in the podcast. As we do with everybody that comes as a guest, we're just curious. How did you get into MA? Tell us about your MA story. Thank you. First off, thank you, Glenn and Seb. It's an honor to be here with you all. My motivational interviewing journey began a long time ago in 1985. That year, I completed an interdisciplinary graduate degree in health education and behavior change counseling. After graduating, I landed a job as a health counselor at a health research center. My job was to deliver behavior change interventions across a range of health behaviors, physical activity, exercise, stress management, tobacco, alcohol, med adherence, and so on. And initially, in, in my role as a health counselor, I, I loved what I was doing. I was passionate, committed, counseled study participants exactly in the way I was trained, which more or less sounded like, what's your action plan? What's your long-term goal? What's your specific short-term goal? What's your first step? How will you monitor and keep track of your progress? How will your support come from in your life? Who might support you? How might they do that? How will you reward yourself? Uh, How will you prevent and manage roadblocks? Uh, What might be some of those roadblocks that could appear in your life? How will you know if your plan is working? Um, How would you summarize your action plan with me? Is this exactly what you're going to do? And and just saying all that, I I get stressed. (laughs) And that's what happened to me. After working in this way, I lost interest and burned out in, in my role, resigned from my position, in 1988, my, um, I got married. My wife and I uh, took our wedding money and spent a year traveling around the world on the cheap. When we got back, we spent a year working at a cross-country ski ranch. Three years after that, I worked as a school counselor in a tribal school on an Indian reservation. At the end of my third year working as a school counselor, I got a package in the mail. In that package was the first edition of Miller and Rolnick's classic motivational interviewing book published in 1991. There was a note attached to the book. The note was from a colleague I had worked with five years prior Her name is Denise Ernst, a name that I know many of you are familiar with. She currently lives in Portland, Oregon, in the United States. She is an original long-term member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. And what she said on that note was, Steve, I thought you might enjoy this book. We're starting to incorporate motivational interviewing into some of our research. Might you be interested in returning to your old job? 
couple of weeks after receiving the book, I took it with me on a solo backpacking trip. During my first two nights, I was camped out on a beach. So vivid, those two days. Beautiful body of water. I spent those two days completely immersing myself in in my book. I read it cover to cover. I read every word. And while I was reading it, I kept saying to myself, wow, I like this. This makes sense. Motivational interviewing feels good. The authors of this book have described a way of working with people that is so accessible. It is so understandable. It's so readable. I want to learn more about motivational interviewing. I want to get trained in motivational interviewing. Two months later, I returned to my old job at the Health Research Center as a health counselor. My new manager was Denise Ernst. To my surprise and delight, within the first two weeks of returning, Bill Miller had been invited to spend a couple days with us providing some MI consultation and a bit of MI training. And I'd love to share in just a moment my first encounter with Bill. About a year after returning, I attended a motivational interviewing training for new trainers with Miller and Rolnick in New Mexico. Several years after that, Bill Miller spent a sabbatical year with us. During that time, Denise Ernst and several other colleagues, we assisted Bill in developing the first MI coding tool called the MISC, the Motivational Interviewing Skill Code. And for me, from that point on, I haven't looked back. I've essentially made a career of motivational interviewing as a trainer, consultant, coach, and mentor. It's been my passion. It's been my calling. Here I am. So I'm very much looking to hear more about those early days and, and working with Bill when, when MI was, uh, you know, truly in its infancy. And, but even before that, Steve, you, you talked about your first experiences in that job shortly after getting your degree, and you listed off a number of the kinds of questions that you were asking people. And it struck me that it seemed like there was very much a spirit of, of, of drawing out or evoking from those questions, yet for some reason it felt like really pressure-filled maybe, or it, was, it, it kind of burned you out, because it, it didn't sound like, and maybe this was embedded in that too, it didn't sound like there was a ton of lecturing, at least in the example that you gave us, or do this and do that, but there was something mm-hmm. about stylistically maybe, even though you were kind of drawing out people's plans and what they mm-hmm. planned to do, there was something that didn't feel quite right to you. Exactly. It was more of an interrogation. It was very regimented. Yes, it was about evoking. And it was all about creating a plan with somebody and wanting to be assured that when they walked out the door, they had a plan that they were committed to. There was a lot of psychoeducation that was tied into it. I lost interest. It wasn't fun. It felt like I was painting by numbers. It felt like I was just always following a script and my interventions really didn't take a life of their own. Yeah, so it, it, it sounds like there was no space for you to do the, the work in advance of any plan. It was, you're here to plan, 
now here's here are the questions to think about a plan because mm-hmm. you, as you described it they're very familiar to people who have done any planning work even within motivational interview and these are all really good questions to be asking someone when they're at, in the fourth of the four processes which is the planning mm-hmm. When, when their ambivalence has been removed, when they're ready to rock, when they're giving us lots yeah. of change talk now, but it sounds like you were aware that doing that in the, in the late 80s, it missed something. And then you mentioned yeah. you mentioned starting reading the book. So yeah. what, what was it that you were reading in the book that lit you up and brought you back? Uh, because it was almost like what, what was going through my mind was it was almost like you had a relapse and then went back into recovery. Uh, yeah. When you went, you went back to where you started, but yeah. the, the, but there was something there was an important ingredient, and that was the MA book. Yeah. So the, the the first thing that struck me in reading the book is that it wasn't my job to fix people. It wasn't my job to get people to do things and make people change. Instead, I could show up with folks in a way that was supporting them and doing their own discovery drawing out their own motivations and aspirations, me stepping in the role of a guide. When I was working in the way I would was describing, I was directing. I was directing the show. I was behind the steering wheel. I was essentially taking charge. And I knew the questions to ask people that were going to get people to make change. The irony is that I wasn't receiving good feedback. People weren't making change. And my encounters started to feel more like a tug of war, started to feel more like that classic wrestling match that we talk about when contrasting MI with what the spirit is all about, which is dancing and connecting. And it sounds like that's that's the piece that really meant something to you, that there was a relationship there that that you were part of, you weren't in charge of that you were yeah. working with someone, your desire to be helpful was genuine, but it was, in, it, it was a collaborative yeah. outcome that you were trying to create. And it sounds like that's the piece of the jigsaw that Motivational Interviewing provided for you. MI felt very satisfying. It felt like I was working in a way that I was supposed to be working with people. My early experiences in MI, it was a relief because I wasn't having to work as hard. I was able to let go. Would you like to hear about my first encounter with Bill? Yes, please. So uh, it's very, very vivid. The day before I met Bill Miller, one of my colleagues said, Steve, Bill Miller has a way of demonstrating a motivational intervention in a couple minutes. When you meet him tomorrow, you might ask him if he would be willing to demonstrate. The next day, there were about six of us in very small windowless conference room with Bill. We went around, we introduced ourselves. I was the last person to speak. I said, Dr. Miller, I understand you have a way of demonstrating a motivational interviewing, motivational interview in a couple minutes. Would you be able to, to show us? And Bill was very gracious, and he said, sure, of course, I'd be happy to do that. This would probably be a good place to start our time together. And then Bill said, all right, I will step into the role as a health counselor. Steve, would you be willing to be my patient? I said, sure. 
And then Bill said, well, let's role play. Steve, what kind of patient do you want to be? And I just quickly made something up and I said, oh, I'm about 40 years old. I have a history of asthma. I smoke about a pack of cigarettes a day. I have been making frequent visits to the health clinic because of upper respiratory infections. Bill said, great, let's begin. So this is how Bill began. He turned to me and said, hello, Steve. My name is Bill Miller. He put out my hand and we shook. He said, Steve, I'm one of the health counselors here in the clinic. My job is to work together with patients in making decisions about what, if anything, they might want to change or modify in their life as a way of improving their health and well-being. Something I often talk to people about is cigarette smoking. And talking with your doctor, I understand that you're currently smoking about a pack of cigarettes a day. And I'm wondering, would you be open to taking a couple minutes with me and chatting about smoking? You knowing that I'm not here to hassle you about it. I'm not here to make you do anything. I'm not here to get you to quit or sign you up for a program because smoking is your business. Me playing the patient? I said, sure. I'd be happy to talk with you. Then Bill Miller said, to begin, I have a few thoughts for you to consider, primarily because of your history with asthma and your recent upper respiratory infections. As a healthcare professional, I strongly encourage you to consider making a change in your smoking, like quitting altogether. It's perhaps the single most important thing you can do to support your overall health and well-being. And I completely recognize that the decision to make a change in your smoking is completely up to you. I know from experience that quitting smoking, for example, for most people, is very challenging. And there's good news. The good news is that there are a number of good options out there to support people in making a change in their smoking if they want to. And if you're interested, I'd be happy to share with you some of those ideas or refer you to somebody who could spend more time. Now, now lastly, Steve, if there comes a time in the future where you make a firm, committed decision to make a change in your smoking like quitting altogether, and you have good reasons to do so, and a plan to make it happen, I have no doubt that you will find a way to success. Right at that moment, Bill paused, and very authentically, I stepped out of my role as the patient, and I said, Bill, that was incredible. What did you just do? And Bill began by saying, well, first off, Steve, what I just modeled is not motivational interviewing. What I packaged together based on a literature review of brief interventions are six common ingredients that often appear in effective brief interventions, what we're calling frames. Feedback on individual status. R, responsibility for change. A, giving clear advice. M, a menu of options. E, empathy. S, supporting self-efficacy. Bill went on to say a motivational interview will often 
contain the frame's ingredients and different combinations. And again, what I just modeled is not a reflection of motivational and reviewing. And then Bill asked me a question and he said, Steve, from what you understand about motivational and reviewing, what was missing? What's something really important that was missing in what I just demonstrated? So I can carry on here unless you two want to offer a reflection from your end. I don't know about you, Glenn. I'm sitting here trying to think like, all right, well, what's missing? And I have some ideas, but I'd be fine to have you just keep, keep going with the story. Maybe not finish it. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I, I definitely pondered it for several more moments. And I turned to Bill and I said, well, maybe the voice of the patient. And Bill immediately said, I'll never forget this. He said, bingo. He said, bingo. The voice of the patient. People are more persuaded by what they hear themselves say. They're more persuaded and influenced by what they give voice to versus anything that the healthcare professional might say or do or provide. And then Bill said, Steve, if you were in my shoes talking to yourself, what would you ask the patient right now? I, I thought about it again for a bit. And then I said, I'd probably ask, are you interested in quitting smoking? And Bill immediately said, you've just asked an important question. And then Bill said, Steve, can I offer you some feedback? And I said, sure. He said, Steve, you just asked a yes or no question close-ended question. What could you ask that would be more open-ended and would provide more latitude for the patient to respond? And I thought about it. I said, so where do you see smoking fitting into your future? And Bill said, yes, there's an open-ended question, the kind of open-ended question we might ask in a motivational interview. And then he said, what else could you imagine yourself asking? And I thought about it and I said, well, I probably would want to know what the patient thinks about what I've just shared, what I've just given voice to. Bill said, yes, another important open-ended question. And then Bill said, would you be open to some other ideas? I said, sure. And Bill said something like, well, here's a question to ask. What concerns, if any, might you have with your smoking? If you did decide to quit and you were successful, what do you suppose would be the most important reason that you would have had for quitting? On a scale of zero to 10, how ready might you be to consider making a change in your smoking with zero being not at all ready, 10 being completely ready, picking a number and after the person picks a number, asking them, how come you picked a five, for example? I'll stop my first encounter with Bill. For me, it was a complete eye-opener. It was my first training in motivational interviewing, my first opportunity to receive feedback in the moment. So, I mean, one thing in just listening to that is how skillful Bill was and, and still is and in, like, in having that parallel experience of as he's coaching you and, you know, kind of guiding you through this demonstration, 
is utilizing many of the same skills that we might use in a clinical context where with an assumption being on his part, I'm sure, even though you're asking him, hey, can you show us how to do this? He's, um, I don't know if trust is the right word, but he's believing enough in you that you had some ideas about what would be helpful in learning this thing that you were leaning on him to learn. So yeah. that, that's really striking. Yeah. And it was striking to me because obviously Bill was walking the talk and modeling motivational interviewing right in the moment. I really took that first encounter with Bill as a vision for myself and how I wanted to guide the learning of motivational interviewing so that it would be a parallel process. I always say when I'm training that motivational interviewing, yes, is a communication style for engaging people in conversations about change. MI is also a style for facilitating learning. Bill was living that in the moment. And you clearly were lit up. And as you were talking, just the shine coming from you in relation to that experience of just remembering that first encounter and I suppose the purity of that and the, the idea that you would then aspire to be able to do that and uh-huh. to at its purest form, shall we say. Uh, so yeah. you had a, a wonderful first example. And, you know, and, and even as you were describing what Bill did first, many of us will recognize that was actually a lovely intervention. You know, it was, it was very person-centered. And then to hear, and that's not MI, and to hear that here are the component parts of what shifts this frames model, which we know that works, into what becomes more of motivation. The collaboration, that working with, and the use of those tools, the decisional balance, the readiness ruler. Mm-hmm. And that, again, as, as Seb has noticed, Bill modeling the invitation, that evocation. And what do you think? The, the very thing that you're trying to achieve, which is to learn MI, the very thing that you're trying to achieve, which is to stop smoking, you would have been encouraged. What's your ideas about how to do this? And again, for everybody that's learning MI, it's familiar to MI, will recognize that. How do we shift away from being the experts in the conversation to mm-hmm. being willing to explore the client's own ideas of mm-hmm. what would work given the fact that they know more about their lives than, than, than we do and, and how making this behavior change will fit in that context. Yeah. So w- from there, as a storyteller, I'm now sitting, I'm sitting forward in my seat. I'm curious about what's, what's coming next in, in, in this journey and of your discovery and, mm-hmm. and, and your learning and then implementing yeah. it in practice. Well, I, I, I'd love to share another very seminal moment in my motivational interviewing journey as a trainer. In early 2000, right at the millennial, my wife invited me to facilitate a half-day MI training for her work team in a counseling clinic. I was a bit hesitant, I remember. I, I agreed. To this day, I put more time, more planning, more energy into getting ready for that half-day training than I ever had. I I wanted to shine. I wanted what I was going to deliver to reflect well on my wife. I showed up. I spent a half-day with this group. Afterwards, I felt good about it because I had gotten through all of my slides. I'd gotten through all of my material. 
I had said everything that I wanted to say. I did everything that I wanted to do. The audience seemed pretty receptive. In fact, they gave me an ovation at the end. It was great. My wife and I immediately went out for lunch after this training. We sat down, we ordered our food. While we were waiting to eat, I, of course, asked her, so what did you think? She took a deep breath and she said, Steve, you clearly know motivational interviewing. You convey it very passionately with a lot of conviction. It was inspiring. Thank you. There was silence. And then I said, and? And she said, what do you mean, and? And I said, what else? And she said, what do you mean, what else? Well, some constructive feedback, some suggestions. She said, do you really want to hear? And I said, yes, I want to hear. So in only the way a spouse could say something, this is what she said to me. She said, Steve, you talk too much. There was way too much information. There were too many slides. We sat too long. There were too few activities. And you didn't take advantage of the many multi-sensory, multimodal approaches for guiding learning. Very authentically, I said multimodal what? <laughs> and before I carry on here, my wife had just completed a certificate program in expressive arts therapy, just to provide some background context. I said, multimodal what? And she said, the multitude of modalities out there to meet the different needs of learners. And I said, like what? And she said, things like music and movement, art, case studies, demonstration, games, role-playing, real-playing, stories, debate, discussion, visualization, quizzes, humor. She went down this long list. And, and then she said, there's one modality that I think you're really equipped for. And I said, what? And she said, storytelling. I said, what? Why storytelling? She said, because you're already a good storyteller. And I really think storytelling, if you started to integrate that into your training workshops, it could really bring them alive and really support learners in having a deeper emotional connection to motivational interviewing. It would make the training more interesting, especially when you might tell stories from your own experience. For me, from that moment in early 2000, I I've been on my own journey in making my motivational interviewing trainings more multi-sensory, more multimodal. In particular, storytelling, I've run with it. I've attended several storytelling workshops early on. I have developed a whole series of motivational interviewing specific stories that I might bring into a training based on circumstances, based on questions that might arise. I will usually begin an introductory training with a cliffhanger story where I'll initiate the story and then get to a cliffhanger moment, pause the story, always finish the training with the story. So it's really supported me. I'm, I'm not somebody 
who was really good at talking about motivational interviewing. It's not my strength. I hear Bill Miller, for example, talk about motivational interviewing. I'm riveted. That's not me. I've learned that when I can tell stories, it supports me in being me and supports learners in being more engaged. And I found that storytelling, great way of imprinting important MI principles and concepts so that people walk away with something that is memorable. Mm, that sounds really significant. And the word that comes up for me is authenticity, that what you have found is what's authentic for you and that you bring that to the conversation in the same way as you experience Bill in that first encounter and ever since when he when you hear Bill talk about motivation, it's coming from this authentic space and it captures you and it brings you along. And it sounds like you have found a way of, of bringing that gift of storytelling that is part of who you are to be supportive of the people that you're teaching and to help them ingrain the learning. But also it, it fits with that idea that motivation interviewing, that we're encouraged as trainers that when we're working with, with students and with practitioners is to help them recognise, look, how you're going to practice MI in a way that works for you. There is no X, Y, Z. Here's what open-ended questions can sound like, affirmations, reflections and summaries. But what you're going to do is you're going to start to learn to dance and then it'll be you that dances. And again, I think it's a really important message for anybody that's listening that as you learn MI, you're going to adapt it to the who you are. That's the person that the client wants to meet. It's you. Mm-hmm. And in your authentic way, of practicing these skills that that's what then brings the client on board to be willing to work alongside of you on their change Mm -hmm. journey. The same thing applies in being an MI trainer or coach. My perspective is you have to make it your own. You have to find your own style. You have to find what your gifts are that are going to support the learning. And for me, I have found my way and it's only my way, and there are many, many other ways, for sure. So I'm thinking about this, the idea of storytelling, stories perhaps in general, and, and thinking of like, maybe I'll start with an assumption. The assumption is there's a distinction between talking about MI, which would be like, we have an acronym of ORS, and that's made up of blah, 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 right? And so in, in, in lieu or instead of that, you might talk about ORs, but you might talk about them or describe them or even demonstrate them in the context of a story about a past experience, yes. a, cl- a clinical vignette, perhaps. That's an accurate assumption there in terms of the distinction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and then the, the other thing I was, I was trying to think, like trying to imagine you, Steve, in, in a training setting and like, how does a story how do Steve's stories kind of infuse the experience? So one, one was the example that you had there about a cliffhanger. Like that's an interesting, I I hadn't thought of like you start a training, maybe go into that part a little bit as an example, like talk a bit about bit more about the use of that cliffhanger and why you find it so powerful. Yeah. So I'll share an example of a cliffhanger story in a minute. And in an introductory training, what I might do is I might begin by presenting a client. And when I present the client, I might say something like, oh, this client's 45 years old. 
This client is a veteran in the United States from the Gulf War. This person has a history of asthma. I'm kind of using Bill Miller's example here. Uh, this person is getting no minimal physical activity in their life. They drank about 20 standard drinks of alcohol a week. And, and this person smokes about a pack of cigarettes a day. So I, I might present a situation at the beginning and then invite the audience to spend a couple minutes on their own brainstorming. First off, if you had five minutes with this person, what are the kinds of things that you would say and do that you think would work, that you think would be effective? And I, I would give the audience one minute. And then I would say, on the other hand, if you had five minutes with this person, one five-minute encounter, what are the kinds of things that you might say and do that you're pretty certain would not work, that would make things worse, that would lead this person to not want to make any changes in their lives? So I'll, I'll set the stage with that brainstorm. And then I'll say, I have a, a story to share with you. This is a real story. Some background. Many years ago, I was working as a health counselor in a health research center. Part of my job was to deliver behavior change interventions in primary care clinics. One of my jobs was to deliver behavior change interventions for people who were using tobacco. So this is what happened. During my first week in my job, it was a Friday, before I headed out the back door of the weekend on Friday afternoon, one of the doctors on the team approached me in kind of a panic. He rushed up to me and said, Steve, I got a really big favor to ask you before you head out the door. I, I got a patient I'd love you to speak to. Um, th this patient, he's driving me crazy. I don't know what to do with him. I've been banging my head against the wall. Um, this guy smokes like a chimney. He's been coming in here because he's got these upper respiratory infections. He has a history of asthma. I'm just fed up. Can you go in there and get him to quit? The doctor asked me that question. It completely stopped me in my tracks. I froze. While I was frozen, I started to remember something that Bill Miller had said during my first introduction to motivational interviewing. He said, remember this, you do not have the power to make people do things. You can't get people to make change. If you think you can, it's a fantasy. It's an act of arrogance. However, we always have the potential to make a connection with somebody, to extend empathy and compassion to invite people to start thinking and talking about the possibility of making change in their life. I'm recalling Bill Miller's words in the moment while I'm standing in the stunned state looking at this doctor I come to, and I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk with this patient. Where's he at? The doctor said, exam room B. I made a pivot. I dropped my things off in my cubicle. I headed down the hallway to exam room B. Right as I approached the exam room, before I could knock, the same doctor comes rushing back and he puts his hand out and we shake. And he starts whispering because we're right in front of the exam room door. He said, Steve, thank you so much for your willingness to talk to this patient. It is so helpful having you here in the clinic. 
I think I've got a lot to learn from you because most of what I'm actually dealing with here are matters of behavior and lifestyle. Please let me know what happens after you talk with him. I just want to give you a little heads up. The man that's in there, he's tough. He's probably the most challenging patient I have encountered in years. And I don't say that to scare you. I just want you to be prepared. And I figure because of the way you've been trained, you'll have no problems. He said that and he walked away. And then my heart is pounding. It's a true story. I take a deep breath. I call forth my inner courage and I knock. And there's no answer. I knock again. There's no answer. I knock a third time. You can hear a pin drop. You probably know what I'm thinking. Two possibilities. One possibility, something's happened. Second possibility, he's left. He's bolted. He's gone. He's in the parking lot smoking. To make sure everything's okay, I open up the exam room door. The room is pitch black. Before I could turn the light switch on, a man, huge guy, huge man, immediately gets in my face. He starts screaming at me. He puts his index finger on my chest. To this day, I can still smell his breath. And this is exactly what he said. If you're here to talk to me about my blankety blank smoking, you might as well get your little blankety blank out of here because smoking is my blankety blank business. So you all know what I did right at that moment. I start backpedaling down the hallway. And as I start backpedaling down the hallway, I begin my motivational interview with him. Right at that moment is where I would stop the story. I would ring a bell or shake a rattle, let the group know that there's a transition. And then I would let the group know that I will finish the story at the end of the training. I recognize that's not fair. My apologies. I'm pausing the story for two reasons. I've learned something that can support an effective MI training is a good cliffhanger story. I've also learned that by the time we get to the end of the training, you all will have a pretty good sense on how I responded and how the conversation unfolded. Oh, and one other thing I wanna let you know, the man who I encountered in the exam room who was screaming at me with the finger in the chest is the same gentleman that you started the day with in brainstorming what would work and what might not work. I will tell you that I ended up spending 10 minutes with him in the exam room. At the end of 10 minutes, he made a commitment to quit smoking. And as far as I know, to this day, he's still smoke-free. Yeah, okay. So you've, you've definitely got everyone hooked because I think what that description, that story does is described that client from hell, that most difficult situation where we've gone in to work with someone and they are completely against everything that we stand for. And whether it's smoking or any other health behaviour, I guess everybody who's listening will recognise that individual. And you're saying, and in 10 minutes' time, this person has shifted 180 degrees. And what we're going to do now is we're going to spend the rest of the day exploring what it was I did in those 10 minutes, and then we'll, you'll hear the end of the story, so that at some point in the future, you will be equipped 
to respond to that challenge in a way that that facilitates an individual talking themselves around if that's what they want. And yeah. um, so I can see how that, that, that captures people's attentions and then become, makes them intrigued about what it is you're about to offer too, Steve. Yeah. It's something to look forward to. Mm. And yeah. it's always interesting at the end of the day is that usually the audience will ask me, well, are you going to finish the story? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. We and, will get to it right at the end. And one of the things we've already been talking about is that parallel between our interactions with clients and our interactions with students. And it sounds like that's a lovely example of you beginning the engaging process mm-hmm. of bringing people on board, of, of inviting people to be, want to be part of what's about to happen for the rest of the day. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Cliffhanger story. So depending on the audience, depending on the the group I'm working with, I have different cliffhanger stories that I would bring forward. And then, like I said earlier, I, I have a whole repertoire of stories that I, I don't plan on sharing specific stories during a training. Usually they arise in the context of what is asked or what unfolds or a situation that seems like the story would really meet what we're discussing. So one of the things about your story there, Steve, it strikes me how naturally it links up with a question that we got uh, recently uh, via email from, um, I believe the, the person's name was John Paul. And what John was, he was responding to a recent episode that we had about the trans theoretical model and the stages of change. And John was talking about how he, he feels pretty comfortable using MI for those clients who are in contemplation, who are, you know, considering changes and open to ideas and things like that. But he offered the question really, or stated his challenges when people are, are more in that pre-contemplative, mm-hmm. either like unaware or not considering mm-hmm. a change whatsoever. And it seemed to fit really quite nicely with mm-hmm. the man in your story who was, you know, perhaps in a somewhat aggressive way in, in pre-contemplation there. So we thought we would bring that question. We have another one later to share with you too, but what might you say to John's question about what, what are some helpful strategies when working with people in pre-contemplation? Yeah, it, it reminds me, I was facilitating a training last week and somebody said, well, what happens if you ask permission to talk about something and the person says no? Clearly letting you know they're not ready or in pre-contemplation and I I shared a story last week specific to that, where I said many years ago, I was working as as a counselor in the context of the court system. There was a a gentleman referred to me to talk with me about his heroin use through the conditions of his probation. His judge had ordered him to talk to a counselor, just one-time conversation, 45-minute conversation to talk about where heroin, as he saw it, fit into his future and where treatment was going to fit into his future. So anyway, I walked into a room and there's a man sitting with his arms folded. I said, hey, my name is Steve. Nice to meet you. And I put my hand out to shake his. He didn't return the handshake. I'm used to it. I rolled with it. I sat down and I said, again, my name is Steve. I'm one of the counselors here, and you probably know why I'm here. Through the conditions of your probation, 
your your judge has requested that you speak with the counselor for 45 minutes to talk about heroin, where it fits into your life, where treatment fits into your future, and so forth. I'm the assigned counselor. I want to tell you right now is that I am not here to get you into treatment. I'm not here to make you do anything. That's up to you. I'm here as a possible support person for you and what's going on. Would you be open to spending our time talking about heroin? And he immediately said, no. He said, no. In the spirit of MI, rather than counterpunching, rather than saying, well, why not? Um, What do you want to talk about? No. Instead, I stepped into the spirit of acceptance. And I said, thank you. Thank you. Very disarming. I said, thank you for letting me know where you're coming from. Heroin is your business. And talking about it is your business. So now I'm I'm honoring autonomy, self-determination. And then I said, we've got about 43 more minutes to meet. I'm wondering what, if anything, you might want to talk about during that time. He then said, well, what were you going to say about my heroin? And I said, I wasn't going to say anything. He said, you had questions. And I said, honestly, I didn't walk in here with prepared questions to ask you. And he said, you're a counselor? And I said, yes, and I do the best job I can. He said, if you could ask me something, what would you ask? I said, you're giving me permission to ask you anything. He said, yes. And I said, what do you like about heroin? How does it fit into your life? And he said, what? So what do you like about heroin? He said, why do you ask that? I then reflected, that's not a question you're used to. And he said, no, why do you ask that? And I said, I've learned over the years that most people do things for good reasons. I'm always interested in hearing what somebody's good reasons are. He started talking. I started listening. Not listening too long how heroin works for him and how it fits into his life, because the longer I stay with that question, I run the risk of starting to reinforce a no-change position. When the moment seemed right, I made a big pivot, the important pivot in the conversation. I said, on the other hand, what concerns, if any, do you have about heroin? Right at that moment, change talk. I'll stop the story right there. For me, another extreme example of somebody not being ready, being in the pre-contemplation stage, actually how quickly a conversation can shift when we lead with the interpersonal style and spirit of MI. And of course, it doesn't, I get to tell the good stories. Mm. (laughs) They don't always turn out this way. And what I always like to say in trainings is that Motivational interviewing increases the probability that we will have more stories like this. It doesn't guarantee change. No, not by any stretch. What it does is that it increases the odds. Mm, I like that description. And it reflects back to that the point that first caught your attention about MI, which is it's not your job to stop this man taking heroin. But by how you approach this, now taking this idea that you increase the probability that while talking to you, he may choose to think about changing his heroin use. And that 
that that shift to the focus and it made me think of in earlier editions of MI that talk about meeting resistance with non-resistance, that there sure. was no wrestling, there was no, that again, that just, that invitation for you to go, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and just create an empty space where there, you weren't sure. creating an expectation that it should have gone one way or the other. And just yeah. that recognition of the fickle nature of human beings that when we don't go in a way that they're expecting, that can then invite them to come towards us and go, well, what do you, what do you think or what do you want? Or mm-hmm. to do the very opposite of what it was we expected them to do can also result in them doing the very opposite of what they were preparing to do. And it sounds like by you just going, well, this is your time. How do you want to use it? Open that door for a conversation. And and again, that's Something for for us as, as listeners to consider, you know, how do we generally approach the people that come to see us? What expectations do we have of ourselves about what it is we're supposed to be trying to achieve with them? And what is it we're expecting them to do when they're with us? And what's it like to hear you say, look, while I have a job, I, I, I can't force this man, so I created no expectation other than mm-hmm. to meet and to understand. And mm-hmm. from there, this... I was fortunate that he moved towards me and we started to work. And it reminds me, Carl Rogers, 1957, quote, the paradox of change, that when people feel accepted for who they are and what they do, no matter how unhealthy, it allows them the freedom to consider change rather than needing to resist it or push back against it. Clearly, this man walked in the door, or I walked in the door, contemplation so quickly it turned to ambivalence and that's been my experience is that oftentimes the person who presents as being not ready or in the pre-contemplation stage of change usually there's ambivalence lurking and your mention of ambivalence and brings us to the another question that we received on twitter from linda hamilton at l hamilton one is what is the answer to ambivalence? Can it be released, resolved? So can ambivalence be resolved? And ambivalence be resolved. So because I'm telling stories, maybe this will be my final story. This is always my most favorite in my story. And I'm not sure why it's my favorite, just because it was one of my early experiences maneuvering from a motivational interviewing framework Working as a health counselor, there was a 16-year-old girl that I was referred to because of her tobacco chewing. She had severe mouth sores. I got to an exam room. The door was open. I walked in. There was a girl sitting in the corner with her arms folded. Her chin was at her chest and her eyes were closed. I walked in and I said, hey, Nice to meet you. My name is Steve. I'm one of the counselors here in the clinic. You probably know why I'm here. Your doctor has asked me to speak with you about tobacco chewing. I want to assure you, I'm not here to make you quit. I'm not here to get you to do anything. Similar to what I learned from Bill Miller in that very first encounter. You and tobacco use? That's your business. I'm here as a possible support person for you. I'm wondering if you'd be open to spending a couple minutes chatting about it. I asked permission, and without she saying anything, she had her eyes closed. 
She barely nodded her head, which let me know I might have a dance partner. I might. So I began my conversation by saying, I don't know if you noticed, but in the exam room here, there's a big ruler on the wall. This was in the context of a research study. And I asked people a question at the beginning of my time with them. And I'm really curious to hear what your answer to this question might be. On a scale of zero to 10, how ready might you be to consider the possibility of maybe making a change in your smoking? Zero, not at all ready. 10, completely ready. And without me saying anything, she lifted her chin off her chest, opened her eyes, and she glared at me. With an attitude, she stood up, she went up to the wall, she took her index finger and dug it into the number one. She turned around, she glared at me, went back to her seat, and then went back into a comatose. Now, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow, she picked a one. I'm not sure what a one means. In this case, I asked her, I said, well, how come you picked a one? This is a true story. She said, because I like being a chick that chews. Now, of course, I don't know what it's like being a chick that chews. So I said, well, what's it like being a chick that chews? And she said something like, well, there ain't no girls in my school that chew like I do. It's cool. So clearly, chewing tobacco represents something to her. So I then reflected And I said, oh, so chewing tobacco is a way for you to be your own person. She said, yeah. And then I'm getting really curious because this chick who chews picked a one. She didn't pick a zero. So then I asked her, I said, so I just want to check something out. You picked a one for a really important reason. How can you didn't pick zero? Right at that moment, she softened her body softened her eyes. And she said, well, I'm not stupid. I I said, what do you mean you're not stupid? And she goes, I know that if I wasn't chewing, I wouldn't have all these sucky mouth sores. Change talk. And then she said, you know what? And I said, what? She said, all my friends keep saying I'm stupid. And and I, I hate that doctor. I hate coming into this clinic. I hate everyone dragging me in here. And you know what? My boyfriend, he split up with me because he doesn't said he doesn't want to be hanging out with somebody that's got nasty mouth sores. Then the tears came. I'm just listening. I'm just reflecting. I'm holding presence, extending empathy and compassion. And after a couple of minutes of she crying, I hold up a big mirror and I summarize her change talk. After summarizing her motivations, I then asked her, hey, what if anything did I miss? She's crying. She goes, you didn't miss anything. Then I said, so where do you see tobacco chewing fitting into your future? Without saying anything, she put her hand to her back pocket and pulled out a can and handed it to me. I said, what are you doing? She goes, you know what I'm doing. And I said, I think I know what you're doing. And I'd be really curious for you to tell me actually what you're doing. She says, I'm getting rid of this sorry SHIT right now. Can I leave? And I reflected, 
you're making a commitment right now to quit smoking. She said, I am. Can I leave? And I said, you may leave. And I just want to say one thing in closing. I am totally confident that if you stick with that decision, that commitment, and you don't give up, you don't waver, you'll stay tobacco-free. She was gone. I talked to her mother a couple of weeks later. At that point, she was still tobacco-free. So was her result, was her ambivalence resolved? Yes. She moved to a place of action. She made a commitment with me in the moment. There was no plan connected to it. She was ready to run with being tobacco-free, and she found a way to make it happen. I'm a firm believer that ambivalence, when it's met and worked with in the spirit of MI, there's great potential for folks to get off the fence, to make committed decisions, to start seeing things with a new perspective, and to make change. So in this case for this girl, the, the ambivalence one we would define that or identify it as the, on the one hand, there's this identification with the chick who choose and a way to stand out as a way to be special, I suppose, from a, from a social standpoint. And then there was the, the sores and the breakup with the boyfriend and, and, you know, the, I guess you could say bullying even from, from the people that were making fun of her mouth sores. The resolution of the ambivalence is this, I imagine if we could talk to her a month later, if she was tobacco free, like to be, it, I would imagine the importance of finding something that makes her special or finding a way to define herself, those kinds of very natural adolescent and perhaps even adult strivings, that that didn't go away. But it was the, the role that tobacco played in meeting that, that need, I suppose. And so, and of course, you know, the, the, the other things that were important to her, you know, the, the lack of the bullying and maybe she, maybe her and her boyfriend patched it up now that she stopped chewing, who knows? So that would be, I guess we could view that as the resolution of the ambivalence. So this is a really nice, nice story that fit with that. I guess a, a question that I wonder, which is somewhat similar, and, and I know others have thought of this too, is does someone need to resolve ambivalence? Or, you know, can can change occur with still holding on to this? Yeah, but I, I really like being the chick that chews, you know? Yeah. yeah. So this is a very quick story. Another person who chews tobacco is talking to a middle-aged man about his tobacco chewing. He said, there's nothing you could say that would make me want to quit. I like chewing. It's the only vice that I have in my life. I'm going to keep doing it. I thanked him. Thanks for letting me know where you're coming from. I definitely honor your decision. It's been a pleasure meeting with you. A couple of months later, I was walking through a clinic waiting room. Somebody called out to me and said, hey, Steve. And I looked across the waiting room and there was this man waving his hand at me and I walked towards him. He looked familiar. I couldn't really pinpoint him. And I got up to him and I, I said, hello. And he said, you probably don't remember me. I talked to you a while back about tobacco chewing, and I told you I wasn't ever going to quit. He said, oh, yeah, I, I, I remember meet you. And he said, guess what? 
I said, what? He said, I quit. I said, what happened? And he said, I don't know. You just got me thinking. For me, that's an example of the metaphor I like to use about leaving a pebble in somebody's shoe, Mm. where they walk out the door and our encounter, no matter how brief, has triggered inner dialogue. This man left the waiting room with some ambivalence starting to arise. That's my guess. I don't know exactly what happened in his case because we didn't, I had to move on. Something happened. I guess as I listen to you, one of the things that you offer throughout, probably most of us are not used to in most human relationships is acceptance. That you're modeling acceptance for who this person is with a genuine authenticity, which is, look, I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I am curious as to why this fits because it, it fits for a reason and everything yeah. makes sense. And that, yeah. that for most of us, we go seeking help and our expectation is, is at some level this other person is going to be an expert and they're going to tell us how and what to do. Mm-hmm. And what we're, what we're experiencing in motivation interviewing is someone going, well, the starting point is you already have value just the way you are. Mm-hmm. And there's that old expression I I forget who coined it. Our expression, our acceptance frees people to make change. Maybe that was Carl Rogers. Mm. I'm not sure, mm. but that's a phrase that I will oftentimes frequently use in my in my trainings. Yeah, and I, I, I think that it brings, it brings us back to the mindset, the heart set of us as practitioners. What is it that we need to do? to get to a place where we can genuinely accept this other person for who they are, no matter what, how they're behaving. Because it's in that space that change becomes possible. And what is it I need to do with my prejudices, my expectations, and my desires for this other person? What can I do with those to help them soften? Because it's softening those Mm -hmm. that creates this space, that containing space where you can be yourself, when you're with me and then it's tr- it's that trusting that when an individual is allowed to be themselves they know and want to be healthy they know and they want to be well they know and want to, to flourish and thrive um that, that that what we're doing is creating that space where growth can mm-hmm. can arise from within the individual and mm-hmm. it sounds like that potentially what that ex- that individual experienced which was you went you know what it's lovely to meet you yeah, uh-huh. and it's and it's a practice. How how can we leave our judgments and our biases and our desires? And what we hope for people at mm. the door, mm. and of course, I do have hopes. We all have hopes. We all want to guide our conversations in the direction of what's in the other person's best interests. Mm. How can I park at the door as hard as it is? What my aspirations are. So that there is that space you're talking about, Glenn, for people to know what it's really like to be accepted. Lovely. There's no doubt that we can continue and and, and the, we can keep leafing through this book of stories and, 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 and keep hearing more and more of them. But I'm conscious of our time, Steve, and what I'd like to do now then is ask you the first of the two questions we ask all of our guests is, you know, what, what's, what's potentially going on in your life at the minute that's 
catching your attention that may or may not be MI related? Yeah, you know, first is um, caring for elders. My wife's father, my wife's mother, they're at the end of their lives. That's a major focus. The other thing for me is I'm starting to navigate the early stages of retirement. Retirement's often the horizon. And I've got different things I'm looking forward to. Playing more music, gardening, woodworking in the winter, a lot more cross-country skiing in the summer, a lot more canoeing and kayaking. I look forward to providing more service to several organizations that are addressing the climate crisis. Those are immediate things. I'm not going to completely divorce myself at this point from my motivational interviewing work, and it's something I'm definitely in the process of transitioning away from. It's a journey. Yeah. And it sounds like that's part of the theme of what you're describing is just those transition moments and relationships and transitions mm-hmm. in relationships and and your your wish and your desire to be as present in those as nature takes its course and influencing nature where you can and influencing human beings' relationships with nature. Um, yes. Yeah, beautiful. And Steve, we often ask our guests or always ask our guests uh, if people had interest in reaching out to you to maybe hear another story or find out more about your work. Would you be open to people contacting you? And if so, how can they? Oh, for sure. Going to my website, berg-smith.com, B-E-R-G hyphen or dash, S-M-I-T-H-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G.com, bergsmithtraining.com. Can access my phone, email, love to connect. Well, we really appreciate you connecting with us tonight, uh, or tonight for me, and today for you too. Uh, as we're recording, it's just coming up to 25 past nine here in Northern Ireland, uh, and it's it's early doors for you over in California, Steve, and in Winston-Salem, Seb, it's the afternoon. So uh, thank you for connecting with us tonight, Steve, and, and sharing with us some of your uh, stories. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Steve. You bet.